Hello, and thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast from Prism Insurance Agency. As you know, we put in a ton of time and effort to make each of our shows as valuable as we can. If you find the information useful, please share this podcast with a friend by emailing it to them or sharing this on the social media site of your choice. According to our current guest, approximately 8% of the U.S. population is unable to make responsible decisions on their own behalf due to mental handicaps and a variety of other disabling conditions. In recognition of October as Down Syndrome Awareness Month, we are bringing special guest attorney John Stocking of Petrie & Stocking Law Firm. John has practiced law for 47 years with an emphasis on estate planning and a special emphasis on special needs planning. Now, whether or not you have a family member that's in this situation, a serious health issue, or an accident can place a family member in this position. And unfortunately, all too often, families are not aware of the special needs planning that can be done. And if you need this special type of planning in your family and you need some help with sample documents or just have a few questions, you can reach out to Attorney John Stocking at his email, which is stocking at petriestocking.com. That's S-T-O-C-K-I-N-G at P-E-T-R-I-E-S-T-O-C-K-I-N-G dot com. Or you can call him at his Milwaukee office at 414-276-2850. Welcome, John. Hey, thank you for including me. You've had a career of estate planning with a special focus on families with special needs and disabilities. How did you get involved in that end of your practice? My wife, Mary, and I have six children and are unusual for a Down syndrome child. Our first child, when we were 23 and 22 years of age, our first child was born, and John's a Down syndrome, and he just turned 50. So at that young age, I had not even begun law school. I entered law school about three or four months after John was born. And it was interesting to me as I went through law school to kind of ask, I'd be sitting listening to the professor and wondering just how some of the concepts in these various classes, like in torts, which is really car accidents, they talk about the reasonable and prudent person. And I'd be wondering, well, I wonder how a guy like John, my son, will deal with that situation. How would he be treated in a court of law? And so I went through law school thinking about that. And when I got out, of course, a young lawyer, I had no clients, but I did have many dealings with other parents who Mary and I were active in the community dealing with people with disabilities. And we met other parents and they all assumed that because I was a lawyer, I knew everything about being a lawyer. And, of course, I didn't want to disabuse them of that assumption. <laughs> but I did end up dealing a lot with problems and over the years became much more conversant with problems dealing with people with disabilities and ended up, it's a major, major part of my practice. Well, John, so, help us understand, because I know that estate planning considerations for a family with a person with disabilities generally would get counsel from yourself to put in place a special needs trust. Let's maybe give our listeners some of the background on what a special needs trust is and then who are they really designed to help? A special needs trust 
serves a very important function, and it's not just parents. It can be anyone who's interested in providing more financial stability for a person with disabilities. But the typical case might be parents like Mary and myself who are concerned about our son and the fact that he was not only retarded, but he was handicapped physically, and he couldn't really survive independently in our free market system. So we wanted to make certain that John got all the help he could. And the two main sources of help financially for a person who is disabled, whether it's a Down syndrome person or a person who is mentally ill or seriously physically disabled, the two sources are the government and the private family. The real issue here is, how does a guy like my son John continue to qualify and be eligible for medical assistance? Medicaid, Title 19, the same program, just different names for it. How does John continue to remain eligible for that program if he receives inheritance from his parents? And people don't realize that if you have over $2,000 of assets in your name. You can't get medical assistance. You can't get government health insurance. And therefore, if John's dad leaves any more than a few thousand dollars to each of his children, John would not qualify. And while I'm not a wealthy person, his share of my estate would be more than $2,000. So I was very interested in how I could help John by including him in my estate planning and yet not make him ineligible for the very important medical assistance help. Medical assistance covers his residence costs. Medicare, which we so-called normal people receive if we live long enough, doesn't cover nursing home costs, residence costs in old age. But medical assistance or Medicaid or Title 19 does cover those costs for a guy like John. So we wanted him to be eligible for that. And therefore, our private money, John's share of our estate, goes into what we call a special needs trust, very specially drafted so that John is only a contingent beneficiary. He can't be the trustee. He can't have access to the money or authority to take the money because that would make him an owner of the money in the trust. And if he's an owner of it, he would have more than $2,000 and therefore would no longer be eligible for medical assistance and or supplemental security income, which is a cash program per month that provides seven, usually 800, sometimes more dollars per month. And that's very helpful for guys like John. So it's a way for the private family and those financial planners, insurance people, and other people who are helping the public manage their money. This is a very, very important thing for about the 8 to 10% of families who have a person who is not capable of competing independently in our economic system. Combine the private assets in the special needs trust with the government help through medical assistance, through supplemental security income. Those are programs in the government where you have to be practically dirt poor to qualify and be eligible. So you can't have a person inheriting money and still 
be eligible for medical assistance. You have to have that inheritance go into a special needs trust, and it has to be managed, of course, by a trustee. The disabled guy can't be the trustee. He can't have authority to take the money because that would make him an owner. I hope that's reasonably clear. If you're not sure that the listening audience understood that, throw me another fastball and I'll try to be a better hitter. I think you're very clear, John. I just met with a couple last week, and they had a special needs child, and it was due to a head injury. Their advice that they were given is that they couldn't leave any money to that child. And what you're telling the audience is there is a way for them to qualify for public assistance, and yet more of a partnership between family money and public assistance, you just have to set it up properly and you need to work with an attorney such as yourself who has an emphasis on special needs planning and understands the laws, especially in the state that you reside. That's correct. I'm not here to try to tell people who are listening that, my God, every time you inhale and exhale, you've got to go out and hire an attorney to help you do it. But in this area, the clients that you are helping, and it's so important that you help them to understand that they get up in the morning and they work hard and they work for 30, 40 years accumulating assets that you're helping them accumulate through investments and proper management. Don't make a mistake by missing out on having one of the people in their family who really can't deal with the intricacies and complexities of modern life. A retarded person needs that parental help, and really you as an advisor will get such a sense of satisfaction out of helping these people. You will see a client who really appreciates you because these clients who are parents of a disabled person, they only think about what's going to happen to little Freddie when we're gone. They only think about that three or four times a day. And if you can give them an answer to how private money can be combined with government money and give little Freddie a greater chance of financial stability and security, that's an answer to one of the most important problems your clients are worrying about. So, so you're, well said. You're going to be a hero. Yeah, no question. <laughs> Let's face it, you said 8 to 10% of America. Well, that's a significant number of people that simply need guidance, and they just should not go this planning alone. John, we're going to take a brief break. When we come back, let's talk a little bit more about this special needs trust and give our listeners a little bit more education on what to kind of look out for as they help their family design for a family member with special needs. So please stay tuned. Don't forget to visit the Resources for You section on your Real Wealth Professionals website. You'll find links to many educational tools and resources. You'll also find a must-read section including many great authors who have been guests on past programs. Feel free to order any books that interest you or someone you know. Welcome back as we continue our conversation today with attorney John Stocking with the law firm Petrian Stocking. And John, you've been practicing law now in the Milwaukee area for over 47 years, and you've been concentrating your practice in estate planning with a focus on estate planning for families. 
with a person with disabilities. And so we appreciate this very important topic. Before the break, we were starting to talk about special needs trust, and that's a tool to put in place to help with managing well for that person outside of the medical assistance benefits that may be available across the country in the varied states. Maybe help our listeners understand, are there many different designs of special needs trust? I mean, there are multiple different ways to design that. How many different types of special needs trust are there? There are really two basic kinds. I don't see the eyes of any listeners fogging over or the deer in the headlights look when I start talking about two different kinds. So just concentrate on this. And really the answer to which of the two you might need is dependent on the answer to this one question. Where does the money come from that's going to go into that special needs trust? If the money that is going into the trust to make the person with disabilities qualify for need-based government benefits like medical assistance and supplemental security income, if that money is coming from the disabled person, either through accumulated earnings, he may live at home, he may have a job without any cost really at home, he's accumulating money, or he inherited money and there was a transfer to his checking or savings account, and under his social security number, he has the money that is making it impossible for him. It's more than $2,000, so he doesn't qualify for medical assistance, and therefore you got to get rid of that extra money. That kind of special needs trust is called a self-settled special needs trust or a first-party special needs trust, and it has to have one particular change or addition to it as opposed to the other kind, which I'll describe in a moment. It needs to have a reimbursement clause in it where at the death, of the disabled person, then the state or states that have provided medical assistance can come in and be reimbursed proportionally if there's more than one state, but usually it's one state, be reimbursed for the medical assistance that was provided for that disabled person during his or her life. The other kind of special needs trust is called a third party, and it means that the money that goes into the trust, remember, that's the test. Where does the money come from that goes into the special needs trust? And if it's from the disabled person, it's a self-settled or first-party special needs trust and requires that reimbursement clause or promise at the death only at the death of the disabled person. But if the money comes from anywhere else, anyone else in the world, the parents, the uncle, the aunt, the grandparents, brothers and sisters, anybody else in the world, the money comes that's going into the trust from anybody else other than the disabled person, then you don't have to have that reimbursement promised to the state and at the death of the disabled person, any money remaining in that trust will go out to other the siblings of that disabled person quite often. Or if the disabled person has children, that would be the first choice. But you don't owe any reimbursement to any state that would be providing medical assistance to the disabled person during his or her life. And that's important because the greater amount of money will often come from the family. 
And if the family has a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars sitting in a trust that's helping to support financially that disabled person, and there's no reimbursement clause, and let's say there's fifty or a hundred thousand dollars left at the time the disabled person dies, well, that money would be certainly very helpful to brothers and sisters of that disabled person or anybody else in the family that the parents decide they want to favor. And I might add that when a special needs trust is a first party or self-settled, that means the money came from the disabled person. Once the reimbursement is completed and satisfied to the state, there still may be some money left in that trust. And particularly for Let's take an example of a personal injury. Tony and Jim mentioned that they had a case last week involving an injury. When a person is injured and they could receive their disability through that injury or they could be disabled beforehand and then injured, that money that they receive from the court and the settlement is their money. It makes them whole, so it's their money, and you have to have the reimbursement clause in that type of special needs trust. But if there's any of that money left over after the state is reimbursed, it also can go out to the family. And that kind of direction and distribution is taken care of in the body of the trust and should be included there. I hope that's helpful and relatively clear. Well, I think so, John. And maybe you can give us a typical case or example, a situation that you've been involved in and how that played out. Well, the typical case that I think our listening audience might be most helped by would be a mom and dad situation where they have a child who could be suffering from autism, could be suffering from Down syndrome, could be suffering from any kind of cognitive disability. Most often, it's an inability to think clearly, but also you can have people qualifying for medical assistance who are seriously physically disabled so that they may be able to think relatively clearly, but their combination of physical disabilities can make them candidates for medical assistance. When parents have a child who is handicapped or disabled, They want to combine their private assets, their estate planning for that child. They want to make certain that the government assets are going to be available to that child. They don't want to transfer their private money in a way that would block the help that the government can give to that child. And that's where the trust comes in. So the family transfers its private money for that disabled person to a special needs trust, and the disabled person is the only beneficiary that's allowed for that trust, but he or she, the disabled person, is not the trustee, really not anyone who has any authority to take the money. He can't force a court to give him the money. He's a contingent beneficiary, and his benefits are contingent upon the trustee distributing assets from the trust, income or principal, to him or her. And that would be a third-party special needs trust because the money is coming from someone, the parents, other than the disabled person. John, I think that was really, quite honestly, very clear because it pains me in our working with clients and talking about estate planning when parents still today 
presume that, well, if my child, who might be an adult at this point, is going to benefit from government programs, then if I leave them money direct, of course, it'll interrupt those programs, like you well said, except their thought processes without planning or information, I just have to disinherit that child. And so what you've well laid out is, thankfully to our listeners, there is an alternative. There's no reason to disinherit a child with needs or an adult with special needs because of the tools in estate planning that are available today, predominantly this third-party trust where they're a contingent beneficiary. So I think you've done a great job of clarifying that. It's really important not to disinherit that child because if the people who are listening to this program who are advisors of investments and insurance and so on, if they want to please their client, they're going to solve that problem as to how the client's mom and dad can arrange transfer of their assets, part of it for their disabled child, so that they don't block the government benefits. Right. And it's extremely important to them to solve that problem. I can't overemphasize that that has to be one of the questions that your listening audience, the people in that audience, should be including in their questionnaire to send out the new people who are coming to them. Right. Do you have someone in your family? Or do you have someone that you feel responsible for, even if it's not a child? Do you have a brother? Do you have a sister? Do you have people near you in your extended family who you can help advise by making them aware of the special needs trust? Going back again to law school, I took a trust and estates course from a very, very nationally renowned trust professor. And he told us in the 15 minutes that he gave for this subject, how do you deal with people who are handicapped or disabled, and he said, just treat them as if they're not there. Give their share to their siblings. When I went to law school, and this was, I have to joke about it, shortly after the First World War, Hmm. I graduated in 1966. You've already given away the secret that I've been practicing for 47 years. Makes me sound like Old Man River, but this professor was wrong, and he wasn't wrong very often. But the reason he was wrong is if the people that are listening, if your clients give the handicapped guys money to the sisters and brothers to manage and hold for him Mm. in their personal names, guess what? Some of those sisters and brothers are going to be divorced, approximately 40 to 50 percent of them. And when they get divorced, there's going to be two piranha-like lawyers on each side of the table trying to grab every penny they can get. And the handicapped guy's money is going to be owned by one of those spouses in their personal name. And it's going to be very vulnerable to be seized and distributed in that marital settlement. So divorce is one thing you avoid by using the special needs trust. What happens if the brother or sister who's holding the handicapped guy's money dies before the handicapped guy, the brother or sister? Will the husband and the kids of that deceased sibling care as much about the handicapped person as the sibling did who's now deceased? I don't think so. So it's death, divorce, and there's another D that I figured out, and it's debts. We all have a bigger felt needs about money and spending than we should. You know, we're human beings. 
as my downed son says, if he sees me feeling bad, he says, don't worry, Dad, nobody's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) And nobody is perfect. We often spend more on our credit cards than we want to. And if that happens, then the money that heavy spending sibling is normal makes vulnerable the money that he or she is holding for the handicapped person. So if you put it in a trust, trusts don't get divorced, trusts don't die, and trusts don't have credit cards for the most part. (laughs) So you're really building a good wall of protection around that money for that disabled person. You've well laid out, again, the tools that are there and then the tragedy of not planning. So we've only got about a minute left here. If we can include kind of a message to grandparents today, leaving wealth to their children and grandchildren and their considerations of addressing any child or grandchild with special needs. Is there anything unique there that you can help us understand? Grandparents, if they don't have all the money in the world, sometimes are concerned themselves about having their own nursing home their future nursing home bills paid by medical assistance. And one of the good things that the advisors who are listening can think about is folks who are divesting can transfer to a special needs trust and they don't go through the five-year look back and delay in qualification with the money that went into the special needs trust. And it doesn't even have to be their own grandchild. It can be any beneficiary of a special needs trust. So the government gives a preferred position to special needs trust in receiving that money. It eliminates the five-year look back for that particular part of the grandparent's estate. John, that is fantastic knowledge that you've shared in our short time together. Listen, again, with 10% of America having to face this or should be facing this, there are real options and solutions available today. But the first step is, of course, seeking out a qualified professional in your area. Work with your current investment professional, your insurance professional, and coordinate with them as a team. Because as you well said, chances are the insurance and financial people are helping develop the wealth, and then your profession can help preserve it and allow it to be there to take care of a person for many years to come. So we appreciate you sharing your wisdom and knowledge, and certainly good luck with your now 50-year-old son, John. We look forward as the changing landscape always seems to come our direction with estate planning. As things evolve in the future, we'd love to have you back for any important updates. My son is very patient with his father. Ah, that's how it works. <laughs> that will always make it work, right? That's right. A lot well, of fun. Thanks for joining us again today, John. Thanks for inviting me. As we talked about in the beginning of the show, John has resources to help you and your family begin the process of the special needs planning. Whether it's sample documentation or basic information with questions and answers, John has offered to freely help you out. His phone number is 414-276-2850. Again, that's 414-276-2850. Or email John at stocking at petriestocking.com. Thanks for joining us this week. And tune in again next week as we explore another phase of the real wealth process. And remember, if anything you heard in today's show you'd like to get more information about, contact your real wealth advisor. Also, if you feel that any of this information would be helpful to a friend or family member, Just click the Forward to a Friend button. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's podcast from Prism Insurance Agency. We've got additional information and links in our show notes, which you can click on to learn more. 
If you have any questions about any of the topics covered or would like to learn more, you can go to our website, www.myprisminsurance.com. You can reach out to us on Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter. Call us at 951-243-2800 or email me directly at prob at myprisminsurance.com. The email is in the show notes as well. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in and have a wonderful week.